There is a masjid in the city of Medina called Masjid Al-Qiblatayn, or the Masjid of Two Prayer Directions. For many centuries, this masjid had two mihrabs, or prayer niches, one facing Jerusalem and the other Mecca. For it was reportedly here in this vicinity that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, received revelation during the performance of the ritual prayer to change the direction of the Qibla, which up until then had been towards Jerusalem and would from then and henceforth be towards Mecca. By orienting to Mecca, the Muslims now turned towards the Kaaba, the first house of worship connected from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to Ismail, Hajar, and Abraham, and to Adam and Hawa, upon them all be peace. We are told in the Quran, we are told in the Quran that the Kaaba is an ancient house, Bayt al-Atiq, a sacred house, Bayt al-Haram, and a much-visited house, Bayt al-Ma'mur, a sanctuary, a place unlike any other place in its physical and metaphysical sanctity. The Kaaba is at the center of Muslim devotional life, and in the great gathering of the Hajj, this becomes visual and tangible. The pilgrim joins a host of other pilgrims, moving in unison around, towards, and beyond the Kaaba, entering even larger gatherings of unseen beings who circle this ancient and visited house. Like a hearth, the Kaaba draws pilgrims towards its generous warmth. And with me to discuss this ancient, sacred place like no other place are Sumaya Ayyub and Dr. Rasul Miller. Sumaya Ayyub was born and raised in New York, is a wife and mom of two toddlers, and a graduate from Queens College. Rasul Miller is assistant professor of history at UC Irvine, with expertise in histories of Black Muslim communities in the Atlantic world. Before asking Sumaya to share her beautiful recollections of seeing the Kaaba and the spiritual effects of spending days in its vicinity, I want to take a journey with Rasul Miller to share his insights on the Kaaba as a place unlike other places and talk to us about how the Kaaba has been understood and experienced by Muslim pilgrims. So thank you, Dr. Miller, for coming to speak to us today about the Kaaba in the context of the Hajj. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I'm looking forward to the conversation, inshallah. Can we start by talking a little bit about the Kaaba as the focal point in Muslim devotions? Can you tell us a little bit about the Kaaba in that context and why that's the case? For sure. So the Kaaba is uh, a place that holds a central place in Muslim forms of worship. Of course, in the Hajj, you know, this is the place where we go and we visit at least once in our lives if we are able to, to fulfill one of the pillars of our religion. But uh, also every day uh, when we pray five times a day, we face the Kaaba. It is our Qibla, our direction uh, for prayer. So in that in that sense, it's sort of connects all of the Muslims in that five times a day, you know, we're all facing the same direction. When we visit the holy the holy site, 
uh, whether for the Hajj or for the Umrah, the lesser pilgrimage, as they say, we're making tawaf around the Kaaba. So it's symbolic of the fact that we all have the same focal point, not only spatially, but also in terms of Tawheed, in terms of Allah being our, our one object of worship, our one Lord that we all submit to and that we all recognize. Can you talk to us a little bit about the history of the Kaaba and how it came to be and how it has survived many different tumultuous periods as well? For sure. So the Kaaba is is said in many of the traditions to be the first house of worship, going all the way back to the time of our, our father and mother, Adam and Hawa, alayhum uh, salam um, and as such, it has also been described in some of the traditions as initially being filled with stones from the floor of heaven. And the, the Hajar al-Aswad, the black stone that still sits in the Kaaba, is, is said to be a remnant of that time. So it's been giving light to uh, humanity since the, the very beginning of our time here. Um, the Kaaba uh, was said in, in some of the traditions to have been sort of obscured during the flood, during the time of Nuh salam, and to have been sort of uh, reestablished and rebuilt um, during the time of Ibrahim and Hajar and Ismail alayhum salam. Um, and, and these are the prophetic figures who established the rites of the pilgrimage that we fulfill when we make the pilgrimage now, right? Um, of course, uh, our mother Hajar alayhi salam running back and forth between the two mountains looking for water to feed uh, her son, uh, Prophet Ismail salam, during his, his infancy. Um, so this is all a part of the, the sort of history of the Kaaba. Um, also, the Kaaba, uh, during the time of the Prophet salam, it was reestablished, if you will, for the worship of Allah, the worship of the one God. Um, it had become filled with idols during the centuries between the time of uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam and Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And so one of the first things or some traditions indicate perhaps the first thing that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did um, after the Muslims gained control over the city of Mecca was to destroy all of the idols um, in, in the Kaaba that, it, that it had come to be placed inside of the Kaaba. Again, sort of um, renewing or reestablishing it as a site for the worship of Allah alone. And then after, you know, destroying all of these sort of human-made idols, um, you know, some would say he then um, he then took aim at the biggest idol <laughs> of the sort of Arab chauvinism or uh, sense of uh, superiority that some folks in the community would have had by others by having Sina Bilal stand on top of the Kaaba and make the call to prayer. And Oftentimes when this is described in our modern context, we, we say that this is um, a, a sign of the, the evil of racism as an idol. And I would agree with that. But it's important to note that, you know, during the time of Sina Bilal, many of the other Sahabas, the other Arab followers of the Prophet were also people that we would consider black today. <laughs> in fact, um, in the famous Hadith, when one Sahaba was uh, was was sanctioned or, or was... Um, was um, corrected by the Prophet ﷺ for saying something, speaking ill of Bilal because of his lineage, saying, oh, you son of a black mother. That sahaba was also 
uh, one that we would consider black, who's <laughs> described as having uh, dark skin, but was a was a black a black man who was a full blooded Arab, as opposed to Bilal Radhiallahu who was a black man of mixed Arab and Ethiopian ancestry. But in any case, you know, whatever form this sort of sense of human superiority takes, um, for sure. Um, I think we can take a lesson from Sina Bilal being instructed to go on top of the Kaaba and making the call to prayer as an indication of yet another idol that, that we have to break um, in our own hearts. And this is, of course, you know, the, the, the Kaaba is is referred to as the, the Bait Allah, as the house of Allah, the house of God, right? Um, and of course, this isn't a physical kind of containment, right? Because Allah is beyond place. But... Um, you know, some of the scholars have pointed to a connection between the Kaaba and the heart of the believer. As uh, the Prophet Islam is reported to have said in one tradition that Allah says uh, in a hadith Qudsi that heaven and earth can't hold me, but the heart of a believing servant can hold me. And similarly, in order for that to be the case, the heart has to be made free of, of all of the other idols and objects of worship other than Allah. In the context of the Hajj, the Kaaba really is not just a distant qibla as it is for many of us as you as you described as we experience it but it is in fact just a looming real object can you this is a, a more of a question of the experience of the Kaaba in a way is it the temporality and the spatiality of the Kaaba are so complex in that way how have Muslims sort of discussed that, that it is a place that's not like other places somehow? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, going back to the initial history of the Kaaba, um, it is said to be a replica in the traditions of the Bayt al-Ma'mur, the, the place of worship or house of worship of Allah in the heavens where the malaika, the angels, make tawaf, you know, uh, in, their, in their worship and adoration of their creator. And this Bayt al-Ma'mur, um, is is uh, sort of, you know, again, as you indicated, sort of beyond a spatial, a spatial sort of designation, but it's said to be sort of right above the earthly Kaaba in the heavens. Um, and the Prophet Islam is reported to have seen this Bayt al-Ma'mur during his ascension. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, the, the Kaaba, you know, this is the first place um, that the Prophet Islam visited um, upon his his uh, his ascension, his Isra wal Miraj, um, he reported that um, you know he had been sleeping, and um, he says the roof of his house opened, and the angel Jibril alayhi salam descended, um, and then uh, he says he was taken to the to, to the Kaaba, and then at the Kaaba, the angel Jibril alayhi salam opened his chest and washed it with Zamzam water. Um, and then, uh, you know, went through the, the rest of the ascension, ascension where he was taken to various sites, including um, the, the, the grave of Musa, alayhi salam, and uh, Jerusalem, Beit al-Maqdis, um, and ultimately um, taken to the heavens, right, and taken to see various things that he saw in, in this famous night journey. And so, similarly, whenever we orient ourselves to the Kaaba, whether it is in our salah, our five daily prayers, or during during the time of Hajj, you know, it is a chance for us, inshallah, to undergo our own ascension, right? In fact, the word Kaaba, you know, which which means cube, we can translate as cube, is closely related to the Arabic word Kaab, which means the heel, right? So sort of the the base, the foundation of of our very body, 
that we use to engage in these acts of worship in hopes that Allah SWT will accept them and allow us to go through our own kind of ascension. So it is a place that is indicative or symbolic of this kind of uh, metaphysical sort of uh, nature um, of, of the human being, right? This sort of aspect of ourselves that is beyond physicality. Um, so this is all a part of what makes the Kaaba itself a place that is not like other places. And then in a tangible way, a sort of, um, I, perhaps we might say, earthly or tangible manifestation of that is that the Kaaba is a place where we all come and gather and meet uh, during the Hajj and during Umrah. Um, even the clothing that we wear during the Hajj sort of symbolizes us, us sort of stripping ourselves down to just our basic humanity. You know, the regalia that you might wear, um, you know, or, or the regular clothing that you might wear to symbolize where you're from or what you do. You know, you're stripped from that and we're all wearing the same thing and we're all engaging one another. Um, and those engagements are interesting. One of the things that makes the Kaaba an important site historically uh, for the Muslim community is that it's a place where people from all over the globe are meeting and gathering. So this is a time far before what is often referred to as the age of globalization in sort of Western history books, right? You know, hundreds and hundreds of years before that time, or even a thousand years before that time, you have this very cosmopolitan place where people from all over the world, um, you know, are gathering and are exchanging ideas and engaging with one another in worship, um, in building community, in the, in the kinds of intellectual and cultural um, networks that are forged at the Hajj go on throughout the course of Muslim history to have a deep impact on the way in which our communities grow and evolve and take shape all around the world. So, Russell, this was not a question that I put on the list, but out of curiosity anyway, um, can you give us any colorful examples of how time spent at the Kaaba or time spent in Hajj came back and affected or or had this kind of larger networking effect on the community that you research most, the um, the African-American community in America? What happened? Like, how did just by way of thinking about it. I mean, we don't have to put this in the interview if, if you don't want to, because I sure, didn't no, ask you to research it. But, no, um, it's a great question. Yeah. I just thought, like, to bring in your research a little bit about Black American Islam and how, what kind of impact did the Kaaba have, you know, on that? Sure. Well, well, you know, pilgrimage to Mecca um, was something that the very early communities of Muslims in the Americas would not have had the ability to do, right? The the vast majority of them, if not all of them, being, you know, folks who were enslaved, um, you know, either themselves, you know, kidnapped from West Africa and brought to the Americas uh, as enslaved people or, you know, the descendants of those people who were who were also enslaved. Um, and there were also some free communities of, of, you know, people of African descent who who ran away from the plantation and established, you know, free communities. You know, so everybody wasn't enslaved. But um nonetheless people would have had their their movements uh constricted um and so we don't know of any cases of of you know as far as i'm aware of of you know muslims from the americas during that period of american slavery having the chance to visit the kaaba even though some of them may have been people who visited the kaaba prior to their enslavement because during the the time of the transatlantic slave trade you know again you had people from west africa who would you know famously make the arduous journey from West Africa to Mecca? So there very well may have been some hajis among the early Muslim communities. Um, but what we know uh, of prior to that period 
is we do have a number of uh, people of African descent, African American, Black American, Muslims who who are able to to find their way to the Muslim world. One of the first that we know of is a man named Professor Muhammad Ezzuddin, and uh, I'm not sure if he has made if he made Hajj during that visit. I don't know if that's something that's been established, but he did spend about five years in Egypt studying, and he certainly was spending time with people who had made Hajj. <laughs> um, and he becomes sort of the first um, African-American or American-born, well, African-American Muslim seeker of knowledge, uh, spiritual seeker, rather, I mean to say, who made the, 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 the trek to the Muslim world, spent time there. Um, he had been a leader in a community called the Moorish Science Temple, um, and he came back to the States and established himself in New Jersey, but uh, his impact was felt all up and down the American East Coast and in the Ohio River Valley in the, in the Midwest. Um, he was really this um, really uh, important, effective community organizer who established Muslim communities around the country. Um, he was very much uh, a proponent of unity. So um, he worked with, with Muslims from various backgrounds, theologically, you know, geographically. Uh, to help establish, you know, Islam in, in the U.S. Um, we also have a man uh, in Detroit, which is also where, um, interestingly enough, Professor Muhammad Azuddin resided before his travel to uh, the Muslim world. You have uh, a man by the name of Al-Hajj Ismail Samson, right, spelled S-A-M-M-S-A-N, who was a pioneer of the Muslim community in Detroit, um, and he actually uh, traveled to Mecca to make the Hajj, I believe some reports say 1947, 19, others say 1948. So he may very well have been the first um, African-American Muslim to make the Hajj um, in that sort of, um, you know, post the, the era after American slavery. Um, he also founded uh, a masjid called Hajj Samson uh, Abdullah Mosque, uh, also known as the Islamic Vision, um, on uh, Virginia Park Avenue in Detroit. Um, you also have, uh, later in the 1950s, you have the Hajj of, um, Hajj Wali Akram, who was a pioneer of the Muslim community in, uh, in Cleveland, um, who had been, uh, a member of the Ahmadiyya community who ultimately left the Ahmadiyya community. Uh, he was a founder of the first Cleveland mosque as a member of the Ahmadiyya community, um, in Cleveland in 1937, um, but ultimately left and established uh, uh, an Orthodox Muslim or Sunni Muslim congregation and established something called the Muslim 10-Year Plan, which was actually a 10-year plan um, for the um, empowerment of the Muslim community um, in Cleveland. Um, so another very influential figure who made his hajj in, uh, I believe, 1957, again, since we're yep, in 1957, he made the first uh, of his two pilgrimages to Mecca and subsequently also traveled throughout the Muslim world, traveled throughout, um, um, uh, traveled throughout um, Eastern Europe, parts of, uh, visited Muslim communities in Eastern Europe um, and in Asia. Um, also very influential, Right. Yeah. Um, you also had um, 
actually the Honorable Elijah Muhammad <laughs> makes a pilgrimage to Mecca. Some say he made an Umrah, right? Some say he actually made Hajj. Um, also in the 1950s, I believe in 1959, um, I had a discussion with um, a professor by the name of uh, Professor James Small, who uh, was is also known as uh, Haji, Haji Amin. He served as the Imam of the Muslim Mosque, Inc., uh, the mosque that Malcolm's followers started, that Malcolm himself started after leaving the Nation of Islam. And uh, he, he, he recounted to me actually going to Mecca to make Hajj and seeing a, uh, a ledger um, in which the names of American Hajjis were written. And he saw Elijah Muhammad's name <laughs> and Malcolm X's name and was, was invited to sign his name under that, um, which is interesting. It's also interesting to speculate because of the fact that people like Haji Simpson and uh, Haj Wadi Akram, who we know made Hajj, weren't recounted in such ledgers. Are there other people who maybe made Hajj that we just don't know about yet? Uh, historically, and of course, you know, among the most famous, um, you know, pilgrimages to Mecca taken by by any Muslim from the West, um, the pilgrimage of Malcolm X, Al Hajj Malik Shabazz, um, you know, when he he famously goes to Mecca uh, in in 1964, and he talks about the impact of that encounter. Um, he talks about the impact of being in community with Muslims from all over the world. Um, and seeing the different ways in which race and ethnicity and, and human difference are understood. Of course, sometimes this, his reflections are, are, are I think, um, unfortunately, you know, sort of used to try to dismiss uh, the reality of, um, you know, racial subjugation and oppression. Sometimes people try to uh, put words in Malcolm's mouth, if you will, and say that he went to Mecca and saw that, you know, in Islam, everybody uh, got along and was treated equally and decided to become a universalist. But if you look at his writings and his speeches in context, you see um, in actuality, he, he is very much still aware of um, racism, ethnic chauvinism in the Muslim world and in America, but sees Islam, you know, as a potential, as a potential antidote to that. In fact, in one of his famous letters, or I guess his most famous letter from Hajj, he says, if Islam can sort of, to, to paraphrase, mitigate, um, you know, racial animosity among people of different, different colors and different ethnicities in the way that it sometimes does in the Muslim world, then maybe, <laughs> maybe it can, uh, you know, fix the problem in America if more, more white folks in America would embrace Islam and, and try to espouse its ideals. So um, those are just a few, you know, and, uh, you know, inshallah, we, we uh, you know, as you said, we should encourage more research <laughs> in that direction. You know, someone needs to write a book, you know, just if they haven't already, just on African-American, you know, hujaj, mm -hmm. you know, folks who have made the pilgrimage to Mecca. I, do, I certainly hope someone will listen to this and a seed is planted, inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah, inshallah. Well, thank you so much, Rasul, for your time, for your beautiful insights into this, you know, the very vertical dimensions of the Kaaba, but also these incredible horizontal dimensions of the Kaaba, which are uh, lived in our everyday life and, um, of course, more intensified during the Hajj. And I want to thank you so much for um, bringing all your wonderful insight to this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great. I, I hope to come back <laughs> at some point in the future. Inshallah.
Dr. Miller has expanded my understanding of the Kaaba as the center of Muslim devotional life by drawing this central thread between the Kaaba of the past and the present, the Kaaba of earth and of heaven, and really showing how the interrelationality between these four important dimensions of the Kaaba are essential in understanding Muslim devotional experiencing of the Kaaba. Sumaya has been on Hajj not once but twice, most recently in 2014. And I'd like to ask you now, Sumaya, to talk to us about how it was for you to enter the sacred sanctuary of the Haram, to visit the Kaaba, and to be in that vicinity of the Haram for the extended period of the Hajj. So it was almost 10 years ago. And I can tell you the memory that I first had of just that first initial glance of the Kaaba, that is something that stays with me forever. And it's just, it's this overwhelming feeling of I am here, I I know my Nia, I, I am in my zone, and wow, it's, it's, it's bigger than I expected it would be, physically as well, but just spiritually, just feeling that the Kaaba, the presence of the Kaaba is just so, so amazing, and, and it's just something that I can never, ever forget. Do you feel like it would have been experienced differently if you were alone? How did your being in a crowd of people change or make your experience what it was? Just me and Allah in that moment, honestly. I didn't even feel the crowd around me. I, I mean, I knew that it was very, very crowded and there were, you know, millions of people. But in that moment, that first initial glance when you're like walking into the haram and then you look up. And there's the Kaaba right in front of you. It's, it's just surreal. It's surreal. And in the rest of your Hajj, how did you experience the Kaaba after that first glance of love that you've described this incredible moment? How did you experience it during the rest of your Hajj? I mean, you just become attached to it. It's, it's a hard feeling to like talk about because it's like, mm-hmm. it's kind of intangible, you know? So while yes. I'm going through all the motions of Sa'i and Tawaf and, you know, going to even Mina and Muzdalifa, um, just thinking about the Kaaba is just, you know, and, and the entire time, everything is kind of central to the Kaaba. So everything you're doing is around the Haram, right? So you're, you're going to Mina and um, you're staying there and you're camping there. And then after you do um, the Jamarat and you throw the stones, your last tawaf at the end, you have to walk back to, to Mecca. So everything kind of leads back to the Kaaba, which is amazing in, in, in itself. So, and, and the walk to the Kaaba is, you know, you're just done Jamarat, you've just, you know, throw, throw, thrown the stones and you're walking towards it. And it's just this feeling of, I'm done, you know. But it's amazing how it ties back to the Kaaba at the end of, of your experience. In a way, the Kaaba is something we experience in a kind of abstract way in our normal lives. So it must have been completely overwhelming to experience it in such a tangible way right there all right the time. Right there, of course, of course. And, you know, it's one thing I tell everyone about Hajj is that it's not, it's supposed to be a struggle. You know, we get so caught up in finding these deluxe packages and these, you know, 
um, these amenities that, that are included in your package, but it's meant to be a struggle. And part of that struggle is, you know, being close to the Kaaba because a lot of the times you're not in Mecca for too long. It's maybe two or three nights tops. But those two or three nights that you experience with the Kaaba, they, they'll stay, stay with you forever, you know? And I think most of us won't get to experience staying near the haram for too many days just because you're constricted on time there are so many millions of people the hotels are all booked out so for the most of us we only get to stay in mecca for two or three nights but that attachment to the kaaba stays with you the entire time what do you feel like makes the kaaba a unique place a different place a special place. It's just something in your blood. You just get this sudden <laughs> adre- adrenaline just looking at it. And, you know, the hours between I'm going to come for Fajr and I'm going to stay till Luhr because it's too crowded for me to go all the way back and then come back for Luhr. I'm going to stay those three, four hours, whatever it is. Those hours fly by. If whatever ibadah you're doing, salah, dua, reading Quran... All of that just kind of sits with you and it passes by so fast that, oh my God, I didn't even realize it's already Luhr. Might as well stay for Asr now. It's like time itself is different in the Haram. It's, it's amazing. It truly is. That's incredible. It, it sounds like you're what you describe, if we didn't know what you were talking about, it sounds like you're describing time with a dear friend, not a place. Right. Mm. And finally, my last question would just be, now that you're back from the Hajj, obviously years later, what does the Kaaba mean to you now as a memory, as a place, but also in your present? Well, during Salah, right? Five times a day, we face the Kaaba, right? So that image of me actually physically praying in front of the Kaaba, it'll never leave me. And that's something that I carry with me today to this very day years and years later right that image and that feeling of being in front of the Kaaba and that's something that you know not many people get to experience and alhamdulillah I'm so grateful that I have yeah so Maya how did you experience the crowd how did you experience the gathering in the Hajj that's our main theme in this podcast yeah so the crowd is for a lot of us especially living in the states Um, I'm from New York, so I'm exposed to a lot of different, you know, diverse groups of people. But going to Hajj is a little bit of a culture shock because you see people of all walks of of, of life, you know, different countries, different statuses. You know, some people aren't able to come and, and by plane. Some people are only able to come and stay for a month and kind of camp out because they can't afford to go through a real package so you see so many different people and that actually kind of resonated with me the most is that there are so many of of, of muslims around the world and we are just so grateful for the situation that we're in right and the crowds are i can't even begin to tell you the amount of people that you will see in the crowds that you will see but alhamdulillah like the the caretakers of the haram are amazing in coordinating the crowds so that that's amazing. But one thing that always stuck to me was that I'm so grateful for the life that I'm in. And I'm so grateful that I was able to see different Muslims from around the world and how they live. And that's something you won't ever really be able to see, you know. And one, one experience I had actually was during Muzdalifah when you're camping overnight um, and you literally have to sleep beneath the stars in a sleeping bag. Um, 
me and my husband were camped out um, uh, in Muzdalifa, right near the mountains. And there was this mom with her five children camped out right next to us, trying to start a fire and like warm food for her kids in the fire. And this was 2014. <laughs> and it was just such a strange experience for me to see that. That, oh my God, this single mom with five kids is here traveling by herself. And she's, you know, warming food and making a f- actual fire to warm food for her children. And, you know, that that image always stuck with me. Because I don't think I'll ever be able to to be grateful or, or even come up with the words of how grateful I am for the situation that we're in. Alhamdulillah. Mm. Mm. One thing that I also will never forget is the the sisterhood that you form with your Hajj yeah. buddies. Like that's yeah. something that you will never get because the things you go through together, like find you know waiting for the bathroom at Mina, the bathroom and the lines are crazy there. <laughs> so just getting through that, going through Roda, um, in Masjid Nabui, like we literally have to link arms and like kind of shove our way through the crowds. Just whatever you go through, you're going through with these sisters, right? And these are amazing moments that you're having with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those moments you're sharing with them. So like that sisterhood is something that I'll never forget too. Well, Sumaya, you you left us with such a poignant image of this beautiful maternal moment of a hearth and a fire. And I feel like it takes us full circle right back to the Kaaba as this hearth around which we all gather and and gain warmth from. So I want to thank you so much, Sumaya, for sharing your lived experience of the Hajj and of the Kaaba with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jazakallah. Sumaya's description of the Kaaba as a place with this magnetic energy, a place where all roads lead to, before, during, and after the Hajj, is truly striking. It calls to mind, once again, the Qur'anic description of the Kaaba as the ancient house of God. Not in the literal sense, but in the sense that Rasul Miller so beautifully conveyed when describing the heart of a believer as a place where God is present and adored. The Kaaba as a site of the night journey and ascension of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, a place where time and space are experienced differently, where primordiality and present and earth and heaven intertwine, a place which, as Rasul Miller showed us, reminds every visitor to think about the fact that although the idols of the Quraysh have long been destroyed, what idols of the ego remain within us? blocking or hindering our view of the ancient house of Adam, Abraham, and Muhammad upon them be peace. I want to thank our guests once again for joining us and sharing their beautiful insights today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. It's your continued support of Cambridge Muslim College that enables us to train the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Please consider making a donation to the college today to ensure we continue our valuable work. And tune in tomorrow for our final episode of this series to explore what a sustainable, conscientious 21st century pilgrimage can be.